Hello and welcome to the shiny new object podcast. My name is Tom Ollerton and this is a podcast about the future of marketing. Every week or so I interview someone who is impressive, insightful, important, entertaining or all of those things and this week is no different. I'm sat here with Fiona Spooner who is a global marketing director. Marketing director at the Financial Times. And I promised Fiona that I'm not going to stop at any point, so I'm going to have to leave that mistake in. Fiona, thank you so much for inviting me down to your lovely new office in the heart of London's financial district. Thanks for coming. It's a, a very rainy day here in London, and it's the first day of winter, really, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't fe- make the most of the view, does it? No, and everyone feels that the uh, winter started and, and summer's over. But uh, despite that, I'm really excited to be here, so thank you so much. So, the Financial Times... Uh, I would have thought that almost everyone listening to this podcast would be very familiar with the title, but can you let the audience know a bit more about who you are and what you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. Um, so, yeah, I'm Global Marketing Director for the um, consumer subscription side of the business. So my team is responsible for driving subscriptions to the FT, be it on um, for the newspaper, for the website, um, and that's every point of the journey from acquisition, our, our awareness campaigns, through to conversion, payment optimization, engagement, retention of those of those customers, consumer customers. And there's been a massive change at the Financial Times in the last week or so. Yeah, we've just been um, uh, launched our new brand positioning, a new um, campaign um, called the New Agenda. Um, so yeah, it's a global campaign, the first one we've done really for a long time. Um, and you know, talks about the FT and what we believe in, and that there's a t- we believe there's time for a reset around um, capitalism and businesses being held to account. Um, so yeah, we've been working really closely with editorial on it. We're really excited about it, and it's been well received so far. Well, congratulations on that. Um, so I will, um, we we may well come back to that at some point, but. It's customary on this podcast to get to know you a bit better. Okay. Uh, so everyone gets the same questions. Um, well, the ch- actually, that's a lie. Everyone gets the choice of the same <laughs> questions, but people choose different ones. Uh, and I'm very interested by your choices. So the first one, personal question, is what is the most useful thing that you've bought for work with um, your own money? With my own you money. You can't cheat and yes. say you expensed it. Like You've actually shelled out your hard-earned for this. Okay. Well, actually, I was thinking, so tech-wise, um, I've been fortunate to work for a company that's really believed in that. So anything that's related to any sort of job, the company has always funded, be it from smartwatches to iPads to everything else around the business because they've believed that um, as a business, if we want to be digital and we want to be um, understand our consumers, then they invest in it. So actually, I had to think about this for a long time. Um, but the thing that I spend money on that's really valuable for my work is all of the subscriptions that I um, buy. Right, tell um, me about those. So I have, like everyone does, um, you know, Ocado, Amazon Prime, the gym, uh, magazines, uh HelloFresh, those sorts of things, and bit managing a subscriptions business, um, I get a lot of inspiration from what other other businesses do and how they treat their subscribers. Um, it prompts me for, you know, when I've got payment failure messages to look at our own, it kind of gives me those prompts and say, oh, you know, what's everyone else doing? What's the subscription industry doing? Um, how can we be better as a customer? 
how do I want to be spoken to? What are the things that are important to me? What are the things that I don't like? Um, so that we can kind of learn from other industries on how to, you know, manage a subscriptions business more effectively. And of course, we met on stage. Yeah. How embarrassing. Yeah. At a uh, <laughs> subscriptions event. Yeah. That was so strange to me, that event, because... I, I, what was the name of the guy who set up? Mark? Mark Manakis, yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. really, really lovely guy. And he's like, will you come down to the Gurk and record this podcast? <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. It's yeah. uh, always, always nice to be asked. You know, and not dropping any, any uh, hints there. And it <laughs> transpired that it was on the top of the Gherkin yeah. in, in London. On which a really was on a hot day. <laughs> and I don't, uh, for anyone listening who hasn't been there, it's just like, uh, it's just, it's glass, it's like a glass yeah. dome. It's literally incredible yeah. experience, wasn't it? And yeah, there was, was about 200 people there. And I was <laughs> slightly unprepared for that, but uh, thanks for making me, <laughs> me look good on that occasion. So, which of those subscriptions companies would you say do subscriptions really well? I mean, I don't mean necessarily the product, mm. but the experience of a subscription. And who does it? Who do you think is falling over? You mentioned a, a really broad range there of the gym to, yeah. to food to HelloFresh to Amazon Prime, which is yeah. content. Who, who do you think is managing the subscription experience really well? Um, I think a lot of the new startups do it quite well, but actually, at the moment, um, we've been talking a lot in our team about Acado. Um, because they seem to use every touch point, even down to the drivers that actually deliver your um, shopping um, and their personalization. I think they just seem to be using the whole experience, not just, um, and it feels a bit holistic and that they care about. They actually care. I think that's how it feels. Um, do you think they care? Or do you think they've made no, it feel like they, they care? No, I don't think they care. I think they've made it feel like they care. <laughs> <laughs> they've done that very well. <laughs> I'd like to think that they really care. Um, but I think the consistency they have and, um, you know, from customer services to your delivery, to the on-site experience, to the app, I think that's probably what we aspire to, is to have that kind of consistency. And sometimes when you've got, um, you know, for us, like delivery distributors that are out of your control it's hard to have that um holistic experience um as on brand as we would like it some days um and when you're a premium brand that's really important uh so i think that's something that they do quite well and who do you think's not doing it well who's who's like bad at subscription management subscription management is that a thing yeah I, I think actually still some of the publishing industry um, and that's why we look to external and different um, industries because inherently we've used legacy systems. I think that's a real challenge for um, publishers in the subs industry, um, still having old uh, print customers on different systems to and digital ones and treating them the same. I think that's um, what some other publishers have struggled with and we do sometimes too. So that's a great bit of advice to really pay your own money to understand what the... I'm sure you yeah. could expend some of those things. <laughs> I don't think that would there. be signed <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah. I, I would definitely Netflix have a point of that. And, yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, that probably says more about me. So, <laughs> so that's a great bit of advice. So could you tell me about something or a specific occasion in your career where things have gone really wrong, a, a spectacular misstep um, that you're really glad happened which one? Yes. I think my uh, biggest work fuck up totally has to be the first one I did, which was, and I'm going to give my age away now, um, back, it must have been about 2001, 2002. 
I was a uh, marketing assistant, my first job, um, and it was at, for a publication called New Media Age. Do you remember New Media, New Media Age? Age? It was owned yeah, by Centaur. Yeah, 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 so I was working on... You, right, Justin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, mind, yeah, 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 yeah. Justin Pierce was um, a journalist on it at the time. Um, so I, we were experimenting with this exciting world of email marketing. And um, I had a genius moment. We were launching New Media Creative. I had a genius idea that actually, why don't I just email all the New Media Age subscribers with an offer to New Media Creative. So I blind copied thousands of emails into my email and sent it to them back in the days before GDPR and any sort of right, email platform right, okay. what, through the, my outlet. And you just um, gave away the database? No, no, it was in blind, it oh, was it was blind, blind copied, okay, yeah. but it basically crashed the entire company's entire email system. And this was a big publisher, um, lots of journalists in the building all running to press deadlines. And not only did it crash the system on the way out, because they weren't used to sending, you know, 2,000 emails from our Outlook that, in those days, um, it then crashed it again with all the bounce backs on the way in. <laughs> um, and everyone was running around going, what's wrong? Why is the system down? Why can't anyone do any work? Um, and then I realised it was me. So uh, my friend sitting next to me said, just be quiet. Don't <laughs> tell anyone that was you. Um, no one will know. But in my naivety, I just thought, well, I've just made a mistake. That's all right. And I went straight, just put, took myself into the publisher's office and said, oh, stupidly sent this email out. Um, that was me. Uh, and he was really good about it. And I think, um, you know, life went on. Everyone recovered from it. But it was an interesting day at work. And I think for me, the two things that I probably learnt from it is one... Never, ever be afraid to put your hand up to say you've made a mistake. So I always think that now. You know, even when people around me were saying, just shh, don't tell anyone, um, it's, it's all right. People make mistakes. And then, too, I think it makes me more forgiving when other people make theirs because I flip back to that moment um, and think, well, everyone makes them. As long as they learn from them, uh, then that's OK. And actually, you know, we had a mistake last week when we launched this big campaign and oh, no, I won't go into details but you know we did send a totally blank email out um, and you know shit happens doesn't it and what can you do and as long as we can fix it and learn from it um, then we have to move on I think that's what I remember from that so that's a great bit of advice for anyone really and I think that's a, a lovely bit of advice for leadership you know, like think back to your mistake I'm yeah. sure, you know, no one gets to a, a, a senior position without having made some mistakes and I, I love that idea that an expert is someone who's made all of the possible mistakes in a very small niche you know, yeah which is a yeah. lovely way of putting it so what other advice do you have for people specifically a younger audience or people who have just graduated and they want to get into the industry yeah um apart from not sending yeah <laughs> don't do that yeah. um so I think my main piece of advice would be to do something that you're genuinely interested in um, because we're going to be working for a really long time. <laughs> I hate to say it. Um, so I think to do anything well, you have to be interested in it and you have to be curious. And I think as we go on, there's going to be more um, flexible teams. There's going to be more um, cross-functional teams. Jobs are going to be more fluid. Technology is going to be developed. So if you're interested and curious and willing to adapt and be um, 
open-minded about things, then you're going to, I think, get on better. You know, people really move straight up the same ladder. And I think if you can just be um, interested in what you're doing and open-minded and, and then you can move more easily across teams and across industries, across roles, across technology. Um, yeah, so that curiosity, I think, helps you along the way helps you meet new people, helps you learn new things, and that's what will set people up to be able to be more flexible and work across different teams. So how would you suggest that people work out what they're interested in? Because there's, there there's must be massive overwhelm. Yeah. Say, for example, I like writing. And that is that is pretty bored. And, and if you said to someone, well, how, why don't you write scripts for plays or why don't you write an, an article about sport or whatever, yeah. like, it's all writing. So how do you how do you encourage people to work out what they're genuinely interested in as opposed um, to just, well, I, I like this because it's cool? Yeah, so I think for me it's taking time out to learn more about what other people do. Um, so you don't have to go and do lots of other things, but if you do read about the industry or if you do go for you know coffees with your colleagues in other teams or to me it's going back to the basics of inviting yourself to other team meetings and say can I just come and sit in on that so I can learn about the world of product or I can learn about the analytics team and what they do um, or um, we do secondments here for it can be a day a month or it can be for a week or it can be for six months and I think just doing things like that um, doesn't mean you have to un totally understand all those different disciplines, but I think just being aware of what else is going on around you. Yeah, it's such a great bit of advice, and it, it really makes me kick myself for all the places that I've worked over the years that had whole departments. I was like, I don't know what they are. Yeah. I don't know what, the, yeah. what does the research team do? And how many opportunities could I have just gone and sat You just in go for and an ask someone. And, you know, and, yeah. And learned. And, yeah, yeah and people, I think, rarely say no. If yeah. you, you know, Really, so you don't you, say yeah, <laughs> or you just say, you know, can I come along and you know, we have a um, morning conference with the editorial team that you know, the marketing team can just turn up and then that's they can see at least once, you know, this is how the journalists prep for the morning or going down to the print site. So, things yeah, like that, I just think right. just be interested if you're going to work in publishing, know how the newspaper's printed, know how journalists work. So, so let's go to the other end of the spectrum. What if you are a senior, experienced person with a lot of responsibility, mm -hmm. uh, maybe a huge team to, that report into you or huge budgets or both? Yeah. I think especially people who say yes to a lot of things can really suffer from overwhelm. Yeah. So do you experience overwhelm? And, and if you do, how do you deal with it? <laughs> I do. I definitely do. Um, I think, you know, like you say, I've got a global team working on different time zones. I've got two young kids. I've got, you know, full-on job. Like every, And life's just busy for everyone isn't it um, what's your earliest meeting you've taken on a call oh I think um, for me it's not too bad I think it would be you know seven or eight in the morning and then you know I can just do those from home for Asia but my US colleagues even last week you know they dial in sometimes at four o'clock in the morning their time um, wow yeah which we do try not to do but sometimes people just yeah. It can't be helped. As long as it's not yeah. the norm, I think that's the... <laughs> no, end, it's yeah. definitely not the norm. Oh, sorry, and it's I, definitely not expected, but... Um, I interrupted you. No, that's okay. Um, so, overwhelm, yes, I think it depends on the 
what is causing that I think there's you know three different things that I probably do one if it's like I've got to get a particular thing done like presentation to write or um uh forecasting to do then I just cancel all my meetings and either work from home that day blitz through it or find a room in this building and just hide and, and get it done if it's um if it's bigger than that then I'm a real um talker I need to talk out loud to think my problems through sometimes um so whilst Slack's great for certain things and email's great for certain things, sometimes I just have to go and either call the team into a room or go and speak to my boss or um, go and chat to one of my peers and say, can I just talk these things through with you? And actually, um, to me, that clears my head, I think, just to, just talking it out loud and, um, and kind of having that feedback and then I, I find that helps. So I had a lovely experience interviewing a lady called uh, Vivian Lee at Harry's Razor. She's a digital yeah. marketing exec, one of the drums 30 under, yeah. 40 under 30, whatever it is. And she says that they use a process called rubber ducking. I've right. never come across, no. which is where when you're, you're stuck on a problem, you have to explain it to a rubber duck. And, um. and the idea that if you have to explain something, then you have to sort of put everything in sequence in your head. And as soon as you put something in sequence in your head, yes. you can start to see the problem. Yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, I, I don't know, I, yeah. I'm assuming there was a rubber duck involved somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think that's um, exactly that process, I think, that you have to go through to then get to the end result. And the other person might not say anything. But for me, sometimes I've just talked it through and I've answered it myself, but it's got it out of my head and made sense of it. Yeah. Um, so, and I think sometimes that helps me. And then, actually, when life's just a bit overwhelming, I'm. Um, <laughs> I, so I live uh, next to Epping Forest. So a walk through the forest is total therapy to me. I live next um, to Epping Forest. Where oh, do you live? okay. I live in Woodford. Right. Okay. Yeah. Forest gate. Okay. Forest, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always I've always lived there. So to me, the forest is like I suppose like other people live next to the sea. I've always lived next to the forest. So just being able to walk out and just walk through Epping Forest for an afternoon kind of is is my go-to um and I've just started piano lessons too so that's my um at the end of a busy day I've started to try and do like 20 minutes on the piano which and how are you, are you doing that like YouTube lessons or have you got a no, teacher I've got or a nap real or person that comes to my house now my son and I have shared share piano lessons he has half an hour and then I have right. half an hour Amazing. And what is it? No. Classical piano or no. just mega basics or jazz? Or um, just any pieces of like music that my son says learn that. Whether it's right. yeah. And what's like pop your music. what's your piano playing fantasy? What if, if you had ultimate skill? What would you play? Um. So well, it's my my whoa, lightning and thunder. <laughs> um, my son wants me to play Bohemian Rhapsody. That's what he's asking me to learn next. So right, okay. I suppose that's, you know, anything that he can then that's, encourages that's him really to tough, sit at the got piano. The whole guitar part in the middle. Yeah, like, I know. Yeah, I don't, we'll see. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, give me an easier one. <laughs> you'll, be, yeah, you'll be walking around Epping Forest. Going, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, last getting to know you question. So, what's been the best investment of your time, energy, or money? Um, so at the moment, in this point in my career, the best investment to me of my money is in good childcare, which then enables me to have um, time back and, and make sure that my energy is spent with my kids when I'm with my kids and at work when I'm at work. 
and especially I think you know with a global role there's a there's not a lot of travel involved and it's kind of up to me how much I travel really um but being able to easily go and see my team in New York or um Hong Kong or you know have them come here and be able to spend proper time with them knowing that I've got you know my kids are properly looked after and it doesn't matter if they're sick they still go in you know we've got um uh you know reliable childcare. i think it's, it's such an expensive thing but to me that's enables me to be at work when i'm at work without right. worrying about anything and that is related to your shiny new objects yes <laughs> so, so your shiny new object is getting mums back into work so that's fairly self-evident but why did you choose that subject and Tell me a bit more about why that's important. So, well, you asked to speak about something that you're passionate about. Um, and then I was thinking, so it's National Inclusion Week at the moment. We're doing a lot about inclusion, um, especially within the FT, and it's something I think we're really good at. But um, I think as an industry, and, and there's a lot of talk about helping, you know, mothers get back into work or parents work um, and flexible working, but I still don't see that come to light enough. And I still have too many uh, friends around me or colleagues around me that still struggle to get back into work and I think um, it's such a shame you've got all of these predominantly women and it really is um, unable to to work who have worked all their lives in really good jobs and then all of a sudden find themselves unable to go back and I think you know it's been proven that it's not good for the economy but just, um, yeah, I think it then affects their children, it affects their marriages, um, and I think we need to do more to enable mothers to get back into work more easily. Can we go back one step? Yeah. So it's hard for me to understand and empathise what that must be like for a mum. Yeah. So can you help me and other listeners who haven't experienced that directly, what, it's, what goes on psychologically with a mum who's like, right, the kids are in nursery now or yeah. part-time in nursery and I want to go back to work. Like, What what, what are the yeah. barriers? Where, where are the... Is it psychological barriers at their end or at the employer end? Help, help I think understand it's the both. big picture. Yeah, I think it's both. But um, I think the ones at their end are easier to overcome when, you know, you think, okay, you've had a year out or I've had six months out. You know, am I going to know everything? Am I going to have forgotten it all? Which doesn't happen. Um, but then I think that is sometimes um fueled by comments about oh you know I th women having baby brain and things like that and I think you know they have to I hear I hear that and I think um you know they've had a baby they haven't lost their brain um but then I think really a lot of it comes down to flexible working and the most people that I know that haven't been able to go back to work is because their employer has not been flexible um or actually and I think within the ad industry sometimes it's the clients aren't being flexible so um, you know if you're a producer at an ad agency and your agency is saying okay we've you know we can work flexibly um, it's not the sort of job I think that um, clients accept or the creative director accepts they want someone there all the time um, so then what happens to that person they just have to go and do something else or um, like a friend of mine then actually took a job when her baby was four months old and went back because she found someone that was flexible, um, a smaller startup agency, and was too scared to turn that job down because she thought it might be her only chance to get back to work. Um, 
So I think having the kind of uh, flexibility to do that, but also um, to see that from the top down. So it's one thing to put it into a HR policy, but actually I think um, people need to see other people doing it and that actually to be accepted. Because I think um, advertising still pretty much has a culture of staying late to crack the brief. Um, so if you're seen leaving for the school run at 4.30, it's still, um, I think, frowned upon. Even though leaving at 4.30 means picking your kids up at 6. You know, you're still paying for sometimes 11 hours of childcare that day, but you're still seen as leaving early and not being as committed as other people. Um, and I think, whereas at the FT, I'm, I, I think I'm passionate about it because I am fortunate in a, to work in a place where... Um, people are open about it and my boss will say to me I can't do that five o'clock call because I'm taking Martha to gymnastics today and like actually having someone on the board saying that to you and being open about it and walking out of the office at five o'clock then encourages everyone else to do it but if it's just a policy on a piece of paper but you don't see people doing that and you're still the only one doing it and people look up when you leave your desk um, it doesn't it doesn't help so I think it's more action as well as the policies need to be in place. And it's strange, isn't it? We're talking about advertising, that so much of it is, or should be, cerebral work. And, yeah. lot, and a lot of those problems get solved when you're not working. Absolutely, yeah. I was chatting to um, uh, Nathan McDonald, who's the guy who founded We Are Social, um, I've stayed yeah. in touch with him despite having left the business. And I, and I was saying, you know, like, how do you... You know, how do you deal with having a young family and he said you, you, you've just got to let your subconscious mind solve problems for you put all the information yeah. in that it needs and then go and you know walk your daughter around the park or yeah. pick them up or take them to dancing lessons because your brain will still be working on it far harder than if you were sat you know yeah. jumping between whatsapp facebook yeah. and the deck that you're supposed to be writing that's so. so true even when i'm sometimes i feel when i'm lying down to put my two-year-old to bed at night 95% of the time I'm taking that time to go what did I do today what have I got on tomorrow and that's my kind of planning time and then I have to remind myself um, to, to think about her too but I think um, I think that's really true um, and with that I think comes the um, acceptance of being able to work from home or work in different places and again I think it's getting better but it's still not I still hear people say oh, she only works part-time, or, oh, she doesn't work on Fridays, and you go, well, she does work on Fridays. She works from home on Fridays. There's still this kind of unconscious bias behind it. So um, I think those things will make a big difference. And so what is what is your view about flexible working? Do you, are, are you of a mind where, oh, you can just work from anywhere, just get the job done, which is our, yeah. my business's policy, yeah. unlimited holidays and just... If you can get the job done working from wherever, brilliant. And, it, yep. and that means you have a better work-life balance and get on with it. But that's easy for us. We're a, we're a startup. But yeah, but we're a global media brand and that's our policy too. So we right. have a total flexible working policy. And exactly that, you just get the job done. Um, uh, but it is easier said than done. So you can't just, I suppose my point is that you can't just say it. That things then have to be put into place. So, for example, um, we have just hired two journalists in the newsroom who work across different teams um, to fill the days that are worked by staff who are part-time. So before, 
Um, it's been a, well, you know, you can't have a part-time journalist. That's a full-time job. Okay, well, that's not good enough. How do we enable journalists to have part-time jobs? And that's what I mean, you know, with the um, ad agencies and some creative roles that have been said, um, you know, that's a full-time job. Okay, turn that around. How do we make that a part-time job? And part-time doesn't have to be two days a week. It can be four days a week. But how do we enable people to work more flexibly? And with us, we do say... Um, you work from where you like and um, and when you know, pretty much when you like and as long as you get the job done so we've just moved into this new building it's all um, agile working no one's got their own net for so that we can kind of encourage people to move around and come and go as they please and just and have a safe environment that's adaptable um, that they can work here when they need to and somewhere else when they don't and so what if, if we if we were looking 12 months hence and we were like oh we chatted last year about getting mums back to work and these three things have happened what, what would what would you want to see what that aren't currently in place generally across the industry what do you what do you want to see change most of all um, that is a really good question so I think um, I would like to see more working parents in those conversations um, and when you ask people how that's going for a positive response not why well, I've had to you know fight for this or work even harder to prove myself um, so I think sentiment is really important I think you can judge it by that um, and I think that uh, more like we just said flexible working accepted around businesses um, less long hours at people's desks in agencies for example Again, I think we're getting better at it but it's still far from um, normal um, and I'll, I'll spare you on I'll spare you on the third one but um, I yeah I, so often on this podcast it's about technology and that is the yeah. shiny new object and so thank you for sharing your thoughts about uh, getting mums into work. I know there's a there's a, a real range of people that listen to this podcast from from agencies and tech providers and startups. Um, so I think that's really important that you've you've laid that out on the table for because if everyone gets a little bit better at it, then it yes. automatically gets yeah. better for a lot more people. But um, yeah, let let's let's keep that conversation alive. And thank you for giving me some insight into how you manage a global team, how you manage overwhelm. How not to send emails uh, in the early 2000s, <laughs> and generally for uh, for accommodating me on this uh, rather wet and, uh, wet and wintry day in London. Yeah. And, and what is that weird sound downstairs? I don't know. I think it's roadworks. Um, classic. Yeah, sorry. Uh, classic. Bear in mind, we were going to be in the audio suite. Yeah. But there you go. There's um, there's uh, uh, and pub- podcast publishing for you. Fiona, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, how would you yeah. want them to do that? Oh, they can um, email me or look for me on Twitter. So it's fiona.spooner at ft.com or, yeah, look me up, Fiona Spooner. And what's your Twitter handle? Fiona Spooner. Fiona Spooner. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Tom.